Good morning, all. How are we? I am excited that you're here. I hope that you're excited that you're here. There seems to be a lot of us here today. The new year and all that's really great. Um, I was going through some stuff. Let me see if I have some snacks in here. Um, I don't think I do, though. Maybe I'll keep looking. No sn- Anybody snacks? No snacks. I guess I'm on my own. All right. So this week, here's what I was doing. I was going through, and, and actually, I think I was looking for a candle or something. I don't even know. I like to burn candles. If that makes me weird, then I'm weird. That's cool. I like candles. Anyway, so I was looking for a candle, and I looked up in a cabinet that we have at the house, and there's this red jar that's sitting there, and I remember... Years ago, I remember this red jar being just kind of the collecting place of, of cameras or film or whatever. So I just was interested. So I looked at the red jar and I was like, huh, I wonder what's in there. So I found some stuff and I brought the treasures here. Uh, I thought that was good for us. Um, so I found this. This is, if you don't know this, this is from the 1900s. And some of you don't know what this is. This is, this is film before we had cameras on phones and this is 35 millimeter and the interesting thing is if if there's nothing sticking out here this lets you know that the film's all used up so this has probably been up in our cabinet for probably 10 uh, who knows how long probably some pictures of the kids love you kids we really do but I, I don't know um I don't know what it is. Hopefully they're not important. But here's the thing. It told me what I need to do. Just return it to Walmart, and I will have it developed. So now I'll actually heed that advice. Uh, So this was good for a time, right? And then we had 35 millimeter, and that isn't like where my, like, time in cameras started. My time with cameras actually started with the Polaroid. Anyone remember this? Polaroid. And it's like it had the bar on top. It looked like it was like space age, and it was like, and it would just like let loose the, the whatever, the, the sound, and it would click and the flash would go off. And then you couldn't see the picture originally. It would, and it would just sit and hang there, right? And then you had to blow on it. But you don't want to blow too hard because then if you got slobber on there, there goes your picture, right? Just being honest with you. So, yeah, you're shaking. You're like, I know, I did that. It's like, and that was my kid's graduation picture. I don't know what it was, but it's like, but you had to shake it and then you shake it and then it's developed only to find out that that picture is worthless, and then I'm like, oh, I guess I'll just take another one. And you only had so many pictures, and you had no idea what you were actually, how it was going to turn out. You just kind of point and click in that general area, and oh, surprise. Look, there's Billy, whatever your kid's name is. There you go, there's Billy. And so then we progressed on, and I thought this was kind of interesting. I actually found this, and the battery still works, and the light just came on again. It's been there for a long time, so I want to make you guys famous for a little bit. I've already rolled this back. This is what you do with disposable cameras. Let me give you a little education. You're getting so much today. So here's what you do. You roll this back, and then when it stops moving, it lets you know you're ready for what? The next picture. And we just happen to have six more, so we're going to take one now. And actually, I thought when we were sitting down and the music started, I thought this would be a good way to chart attendance. So I might just do this from now on. Um, Smile, you're starting the new year off right, but I'm just saying some people aren't, and they're not going to be in the picture. So I am going to take your picture. Sorry, I don't think I can get all the way over here. I'm going to take your picture. Wave your hand and act like you're proud and just happy to be at church today. Here you go. I'm not kidding. I'm taking your picture one way or the other. Ready? Smile. Smile, there it is. There you go. That's good. Here, wasn't kidding. Click, we're there at the end there. Good. Progressing on. Let me shut this off. I got a couple more pictures. I got to conserve my battery. By the way, just, just because I want to just divulge all the, the secret Zook things, uh, this says process before 2016, of March of 2016. So this is a relic. This is at least five, eight, who knows, so this was, uh, this was one of the digital cameras that actually survived through the Zook house. We don't have very many that have survived. We used to go through digital cameras like a lot 
for whatever reason. We'd either lose them or break them or, oh, well, there it goes. And, and then you crack it, and then it's done and, and all that. But it was great. This was a progression too, wasn't it? Because as soon as you took the picture, it's like you knew what it looked like. And it was awesome. And then, so then if it wasn't good, you'd say, stay there. I'm going to take it again. There was no go point and click and then get away. It's like, no, you stay there. Then you can make people sit there for like five extra minutes to get the perfect picture. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just talking to what my daughter does now with her phone. But anyway, you get the point. But the problem with these is then you would have it like on a little bitty card and a card would only hold like 256 pictures or whatever, like depending upon how the cards were. And bef- early on in, the, in this trajectory, you're getting a history lesson too, in case you wondered. So like early on in the, progression of these you could only put like 256 pictures or 128 because they were expensive and that seems like no problem because you have the little card you take the card out you go put it in a little machine it gets developed the problem is you take the card out when it's full to put in another card but then you put that card in your pocket and then when you put it in your pocket then you wouldn't find it until it went through the laundry and then you're like there goes my pictures so then you're shaking your head you're like I lost some really important pictures that way I I understand so we've progressed in this way and now some of you uh, like me I have an iPhone 11 it takes incredible pictures some of you have iPhones whatever type of phone you have probably all have smartphones or even flip phones are better than these cameras it's like you take pictures with with cameras now and like on smartphones and they're just incredible you can put so many effects I can make you a giraffe if I want I think I can I'm not really sure like I can do whatever you want to do with these with these cameras and cameras have progressed through the years and so many times what we tend to think is because of technology and computers or whatever even even cameras we tend to think that because technology has progressed that we've progressed and we think well we've progressed sometimes we can even convince ourselves and this is really dangerous sometimes that we can think that we have progressed past this it's like, no, word has progressed. We're better now. We're smarter now. We have phones now. We have Google. Hey, Siri. You know, I mean, we have all these things. And sometimes we think as people, we think that we're actually higher than what the Bible says. And we try and even just surmount the Bible with our knowledge or our experience. And then, sadly, then we filter our life through the Bible and we only take the things that we agree with and we spit out the things that we don't. And we say, that just must not be right because I just, it just doesn't agree with my life. And when we do that, it's because what we're doing is we're actually overlaying our life over the Bible instead of our Bible over our life. And sadly, this is what happens a lot of times. And this even happens in the context of marriage. And there's so many things that are happening in the context of marriage right here in our world right now, in our country and really in the Western world, not just, not just in America. But I want you to know that although culturally the idea of marriage has changed, God's idea for marriage hasn't changed in 2,000 years. You've changed over the last 20 years if you're that old, 40 years, 60 years, however old. You've changed, but God's idea of marriage hasn't changed. And God's idea of marriage is this, and this is really the big idea. And the question that that we need to come back to is in understanding this, that Christian marriage is supposed to be a sign and wonder for the watching world. So this is this begins our journey into understanding before we go into the Bible, before we go into the Bible with a preconceived idea of marriage. But instead, what we're going to do is we're going to say, no, 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 I, I want to see what God says about this. So what we're going to see is how married people can live as a sign and wonder for the mission and glory of God. Because this is what it was supposed to be about. 
This is what Christian marriage is supposed to be about. It's not even supposed to be about us solely. It isn't even supposed to be about uh, what our culture says. As a matter of fact, I want you to be clear on this. If there's any part of the culture that disagrees with the Bible, we need to disagree with the, with the culture and we need to be in agreement with what the Bible says. I can't make that point any more clear to you. Not just in regards to marriage, but also just in every regard of life. And before we get into this topic, I, I also want to talk about this. Sometimes if somebody's single or they're not married yet or, or, or they've been married and now they're single again, sometimes in, in conversations like this, we can kind of tune this off. But what I want you to do is I want you to tune into humility enough to think maybe this does actually apply to you in this season and maybe that God would speak to you. Although when we get to 1 Peter 3, it is speaking specifically for wives and then also husbands. But as it deals with those things, there are things here for you in our Pride is actually what gets us in the way to where we tune off. We think, oh, this message isn't for me. That's for them or that's for someone else. And the second thing I would add to that is this. If you're single, we married people need you in our lives. And you, if you're single or single again, you need married people in your lives. We are the body of Christ and there is no differentiation between married or unmarried as being in the body of Christ. So we need one another. And what we also need is we need to come to the Bible with an understanding of how to interpret it. Problem that we're, what we run into oftentimes when it comes to the Bible is we go into it with some preconceived idea as to what the Bible is and we filter it through our experience. So I'm gonna give you four different principles before we even get into the Bible. I wanna give you four different principles for good Bible interpretation. Four principles of good Bible interpretation. The fairly technical, take a picture, look at them later, whatever you want to do, they'll all be on the screen. But principle one is this. Interpretation must be based off the author, author's intention of meaning and not the reader. When we go into the Bible, we, we, what we often do is we rush into the Bible and we think, me, 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 me. And what we miss is the context. We miss what was happening around the original writing. Because the original writing informed why the, the writer wrote what they did. And that also shapes our understanding of it. And then furthermore, it shapes our application of it. So principle one, interpret, interpretation must be based on the author's intention and meaning and not the reader, not beginning with the reader. Second thing is this. Interpretation must be done in the context of the passage. So if it, today we're going to be in 1 Peter 3. So what's going on around that passage? Let's gain an understanding as to what Peter was even, or who was the author. We're going to see who the author is. Why was he writing? We're going to see why he was writing. Uh, we gain an understanding, and then we look in the original uh, letter or, or historical writing, wherever it is, of the context around that, but then also we look at greater context. Is it the Old Testament or New Testament? They, that shapes our understanding. Were these people under the law or are they outside of the law? That shapes our understanding. Third principle, interpretations must not begin with our culture in mind. They must not begin with our culture in mind. It was with the Bible and what all of those things that we built up to, to this point. So it's not our culture. Because what we also could do is base, we could throw our culture over the Bible and only see the truth through our culture that we actually want to see. 
And sadly, what will become is we, we will become, just become, honestly, just kind of circular reasoning and we'll, we'll only disseminate the things that we like and we'll discredit the things that we don't like. That's not what the Bible's for. Principle number four is this. Look for the principles and practices that are biblically consistent and applicable in any given culture. So the ones are biblically consistent. If there's a certain biblical truth that you only see in this passage and it's not clear in any other passage, more than likely you're making more of that particular passage than what you need to because the things in the Bible will be consistent throughout the Bible. So look for the principles and practices that are biblically consistent and applicable in any given culture. What's I may not agree with anything else, and you may never hear me quote anything from Jen Hatmaker ever again, but she was right when she said this. She said this, if, if, it's, if the truth in the Bible is true of Christians, it should be true in the 21st century America, a loose paraphrase is where she said, it should be true in the 21st century America just as much so as a widow who's living in a village in Haiti. If it's true, it's true. Outside of that culture. Sadly, here's the problem, and I believe this is right. I'm giving you another book reference, a book that I think that you should read if you're interested or want to know more about marriage. It's a book by Matt Chandler. It's called Mingling of the Souls. It's a great book. It's, it's an in-depth book on the topic of marriage and what that is and a lot of scripture around it. But he mentions in the beginning of his book, he says, we live, the problem with understanding what the role of marriage is in the 21st century or today, it, he says, and I agree with him, he says, we live in the world between two Johns. And he says the two Johns are, one is John Lennon and then one is John Mellencamp or John Cougar Mellencamp or John Cougar or John, I don't know, whatever he's known t- today as. Like, we live in the middle of these and here's what I mean. John Lennon, in the song Imagine, he painted a picture of a world, and it sounds great. There's no borders, there's no heaven, there's no hell, there's no God, there's no consequence. And what John Lennon says, if we would just remove God from all these things, if we would just remove the consequence and and just get away with all this theological stuff, he says, then we'll actually have peace, is what he says in the song. Beautifully written song with horrible theology. Many Many of us hear the song, we've let that song sink into our bones and we've started to believe the lie that's in it but also the John Cougar song is or whatever John Cougar Mellencamp song it's the authority song and and he just sums it up in this way he says I fought I fight authority and authority always wins and that's an interesting paradigm because on one way if we believe the lie that's being brought about by the authority song it says we can't trust authority and if we believe what, what we come to with John Lennon and the song Imagine is that God can't be trusted. So where does that leave us? It leaves us in a world that's confused. It leaves us in a world that's broken. It leaves us in a world where marriages are, are, are just haphazardly uh, joined, where people get divorced, just, you know, like just consistently people going through relationships or don't know how to raise kids or don't know how to live Christian lives. So what I want us to do is take these points of application or these principles of interpretation to get some good application from 1 Peter 3. But first what we're going to do is we're going to start in 1 Peter 1 verses 1 and 2 so we can actually model what I just talked about doing. So when you're going through the letters, Paul's letters specifically in the New Testament, It's a good thing to read the beginning of the letter and the end of the letter because if we do that, we're going to surmise most of the time 
what the writing is even about why he's writing, we're going to see who they're writing to, and maybe even some of the circumstance around it. So 1 Peter 1 through verse 2 says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, so now he's claiming that he's the writer of this. Just in, He's like, Peter, meaning this is my declaration to you, to God's elect, strangers in the world, so now he's writing to Christians, to God's elect strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance, is how he introduces this letter. The thing I want you to see in verse 2 is, and not really the point of this talk, but I love in the Bible, and I point these, out th- these things to you when I can, is obviously Peter believed that, that God existed in Trinitarian form, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, because he makes a reference right here. But also notice that he is the one who's writing it. He says so in the beginning. It, we also are going to see in verse 12 of chapter 5, we're going to read that in a minute, he did that with the help of Silas. But let's not get that, let's not go too far forward with that just yet. But notice it says, to God's elect strangers in the world, this is the, this is the known Roman world. This is the, this is the dominated and controlled Roman world. He uses these, these words, and these were areas, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. This is the same Galatia that spurred a letter from Paul to the church in Galatia, believed to be to the southern part of Galatia, as a matter of fact. So all of this should be creating some sort of form and idea. Okay, here's who's writing, and this is who he's writing to. Chapter 5, verse 12. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. So he's, he's now at the end of this letter and he says, this is the true grace of God. The true grace of God is not just in salvation, but it's living in accordance with God's design for life. For, for us to be able to stand firm in it, which is what Peter is saying is, now I'm imploring you, I'm asking you, I'm encouraging you, I'm equipping you to stand firm in it. And he says, and if you do the things that I prescribe to you, this will be well of you to be able to stand firm in your faith. This whole series of citizens and strangers that we've gone through and now that we're back into is, this, is the reality to stand firm in your faith in a world that stands against your faith. To stand firm in your faith in a world that stands firmly against your faith. First Peter 3, to our main passage. You're gonna find out that verses one through six are just it's a message to wives and then only verse 7 is a message to husbands i'm going to read all of that through verse 7 but verses 1 through 6 are going to be what we're going to drill down on this week and then we're going to drill down on uh, verse 7 next week so guys you're going to get yours next week this message is primarily to wives or hopeful wives So here's what it says in verse 1, wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. Verse 2, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. So they're going to be won over when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. 
Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair or the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Let's pause here for a moment. The, the reason why he just said this is because in their culture, and ancient philosophers outside of the Bible have confirmed this over and over and over. In their culture, women made a big to-do of their hair and the jewelry, and especially the women of prominence. They, they, it was a big pomp and circumstance, and it was actually, it was all about the show. It was all about the show. So what he's, what he's getting to here is, he says, don't be about, don't be about the outward things. It's the, the inward self. That's the real you. And it's the real you that then is going to be the very thing that God uses to draw your unbelieving or your believing husband to God. That's what he's getting at. So it's not, oh, I have to take my gold jewelry off. It's in that culture and in that cultural climate, it was, it was an obstacle for the gospel. Because they had, again, just this... It was like putting like plastic-ish things and like all sorts of things in their hair. I realized they didn't have plastic, but it was kind of like that forming their hair. It was really weird. It was a real spectacle. It was getting in the way of the gospel. So Peter thought that it needed to be addressed, and he did. Verse 5, for this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her master or her Lord, small l. Abraham was not Jesus. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. I'm going to give you, ladies, wives, I'm going to give you six practical things that you can do taken right from this passage that will be at the back end of this talk. Here you go, husbands. Verse 7, this is for you. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you in the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So, we'll get into verse 7 next week. Back to verse 1. It says, wives, in the same way, this in the same way that he would mention at the beginning of verse 6 and also in verse 7 are connecting what he just said. So he was saying, in the same way, be submissive like Jesus was submissive. After all, this is a message to Christians. Those of us who are Christian implies Christ ones. Those who are in Christ, those who are following Christ, those who are living in accordance or supposed to be living in accordance with God's word. Amen. So now he says in the same way, let's, let's back up and let's see, I believe there are five different things that we can start to see in verse 22 of chapter 2. Five different things, and I preach these to you. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them. They were in, in the Citizens and Strangers series before. But he says this in verse 22, talking of Jesus. So now he's connecting in the same way, be like Jesus in this regard. He says he committed no sin and no deceit was in his mouth. So the first thing, Jesus committed no sin. He was the, he was the just one that was dealt our, uh, our justice. That he bore our sins on the cross because God's justice demanded it. So he committed no sin, that's Jesus, and no deceit was in his mouth, his, meaning that his message in his ministry was clear. He told people what he was going to do. It was only a mystery to those who, who, 
who didn't really want to know. If, those were, if the people were there and they're curious enough, then it wouldn't, be an, it wouldn't have been a mystery that God revealed to them, Jesus, excuse me, revealed to them what it was that he was doing. There was no deceit in his mouth. He wasn't unclear. Verse 23, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. That's the third thing. We should be people, men and women, husbands and wives, where we are not people who retaliate, even when someone wrongs us. Being like Jesus. When he suffered, he made no threats. Again, that's the fourth thing. We should make no threats. Oh, you got me, I'm going to get you. We shouldn't be about that. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And I'll just stop there for now. He, he entrusted those with the one who was going to judge justly. In other words, Jesus, he could have, with the authority and power he had in the moment while he was on earth, he could have dealt with the people instead of going to the cross, but he submitted himself and he humbled himself and he went to the cross, bearing the shame that we deserved on the cross, doing for us what we didn't deserve, and in doing so, there was no deceit in his mouth. He committed no sin. He did not retaliate. He made no threats. And he just, he, he just left that to God. He says, your judgment is coming. I don't have to judge you right now. Judgment is coming. I'm going to leave that to the Father, is what Jesus is getting at. So he, he connects these ideas and he says, wives, in the same way. In other words, out of these five principles, out of the principles of Jesus, the ones that are supposed to be characteristic of a Christian today, he says, in the same way, do this. He says, be submissive to your husbands. <clears throat> be submissive to your husbands. But why? Notice the point. He says, be submissive to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of, of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. <clears throat> I believe this is the reason why in the Proverbs there's so many references to nagging wives because a nagging wife is the exact opposite as to what's being presented here because a nagging wife is a, dis a disrespectful wife and the primary need for a man is respect and the primary need for a woman is love. That's what Paul said in five, Ephesians 5.33. And I think that's the reason why in the Proverbs there's so many references to nagging wives because, because God is wanting to silence the nagging wives so that they can be submissive and that their inner beauty can ultimately help the 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 husband to lead well. And a nagging wife degrades and undercuts the husband's leadership in the home. So this, <clears throat> this also becomes, I believe, a challenge because we have so many expectations. We look at these verses and even the word submission, and I understand that it's, it's a daunting word. I've been, I've been praying about this and I've been like, Lord, okay, dealing with my heart before, uh, before even bringing this message. But I understand it, but also what we have to understand is sometimes our expectations can be healthy and reasonable or unhealthy and unrealistic. Sometimes we have expectations of things that can be healthy and they can be reasonable or they can be unhealthy and unrealistic. And even expectations within marriage. I mean, we have expectations, you know, we have certain expectations. We have expectations that our hearts are going to beat without us having to think about it. That's an expectation. You're not having to think about tell your, heart, your mind telling your heart to beat. It just does until it doesn't. 
And then maybe they paddle you and bring you back, or maybe not. We have an expectation that the the sun is going to rise in the east and it's going to set in the west. We don't make that happen. God makes that happen. But when it comes to marriage, people have marital expectations based off of, I believe, certain things, past experiences, namely the experiences we've had with our own parents. And, and, and unfortunately, what, a lot of times what we see modeled with our parents, the things that we don't like, the pendulum swings widely the other way and we were, maybe things were a mess of us in our upbringing and instead we make a mess of things because of our upbringing. And we have expectations. Sometimes they're healthy, sometimes they're not. So they're based off of past experiences. Sometimes it's pop culture. It's just whatever's going on in that time. Sometimes it's personal desires, and God has given us desires, but yet there's a, there's a rewiring of our emotions and our intellect that has to happen, a rewiring of our heart, if you will, because sometimes our desires aren't God's desires for us. They're actually sinful desires that can be twisted in us to make us think that they're what we really need. And the last thing is just good and bad theology. These things, I believe, have all shaped us and they've created expectations for marriage. And even getting into a marriage, there's so many times people have bad expectations as to what marriage is going to be or what love's going to be. They think, well, you know, love is, love is going to conquer all and they, use, they misuse verses like love covers a multitude of sins. That's right for Jesus, but don't try that in the home, you know? Like... The love of Jesus through you can cover a multitude of sins, but that doesn't mean we can just go sin willingly or willfully just because we want to. And many times, even in marriage, we think that marriage is just going to be easy so we don't have to work at it. That's just not true. Or we may think, well, well, we get married, and if I get married, I'm not going to need any more friends because my spouse is my best friend, so I have all I need. That's not true either. Or we think, oh, well, now I'm married and my job as a married person is to, is to fix my wife and her job is to fix me. Usually what happens in those circumstances is you both have to fix your schedule to go see a counselor. I'll tell you. That's just not the way it works. Your job is not to fix them. However, I would say one of the most beautiful things that is offered in marriage is a mirror. And I, I said this in the 915, I've said this before, and I, and I believe it with my whole heart. One of the best things that, that my wife, that Marla offers to me is a mirror so I can see myself. A mirror that God has placed in my midst so I can see myself. She's different than me. She radiates God's love to me. We have a, a relationship and our dynamic is different. Our personalities are different. She compliments me in every way. And yet, our expectations of love many times can determine the outcome in a marriage. So we have to have good expectations that are rooted in the Scripture. I want you to know this from verse 1. It talks about, the, about wives in the same way, be submissive to your husbands. It's because submission is a sign and wonder of the gospel. That's why. It's a sign and wonder of the gospel. It's a sign and wonder. You see, Jesus didn't form an army when, when he knew that the Romans were then in a cohort with, with the Jewish leaders. He didn't form an army, and he didn't run away. 
The only time that he did to get away, or the only thing that he did was to get away to pray, and then he always came back. He didn't retaliate. He, he by his very nature to the cross, was submission. I believe the outcome would have been drastically different if he would have formed an army and then that army would have defeated the Romans and then he would have been just like another military leader. Instead, he's the risen Lord. So submission is a sign and wonder of the gospel and even within marriage, it's the same. That for a wives to submit to to the husband, it is a sign and wonder. In their culture, I want to drill down just for a moment into what was going on in their culture as to why this message would have been incredible for them. And, and it would have been empowering. God was empowering the wives. This wasn't God holding the wives down. It was empowering them to be like Christ, elevating their position. Under Jewish law, a woman was considered a thing. She was the equivalent to an, to an animal. She was, she was property. Viewed the same way that sheep and goats, women, they, wives in the Jewish culture, they, they, were, they were oppressed. They just were. And for a woman to, to go in and to give her life to Christ, and if she were to give her life to Christ and the husband would not be a Christian, for her to have this act of submission, it would have taken so much courage. Because everything about their culture, about their, about the cultural dynamic in that moment would have been turned upside down. Because the husband then could have been a mockery in society because society would have looked at him and said, whoa, your, your wife is out of control. What is she doing? She's worshiping a God that you don't worship. How, how dare she do this? And that would look poorly upon him. Uh, this, this woman to be submissive and for you ladies today to be submissive, it is an act of courage. It just is. But I promise you that God meets you there. This submission, again, is a sign and wonder of the gospel in Greek civilization. So I talked about the Jewish part, the Greek civilization. Let me, let me just see uh, who in here can maybe find something that is, is relatable to our culture. In Greek civilization, it was the duty of a woman to remain indoors and just to be obedient to her husband. It was a sign of a good woman that she must be seen little, and heard little, and act as little as possible. This is the same type of lie that was spread in the 50s and 60s, that women need to be in the kitchen, and, and what used to be told, what, and I know you can fill in the blanks here, but women used to, to say, well, you need to be in the kitchen, and you need to be, be barefoot, and what? Pregnant. It's the same lie that goes back way before the 50s and 60s into, into Greek thought and Greek practice. That's, that's what's rooted it here. And, and the culture that, that Peter would be writing into was a very Greek-influenced culture. It was saying women need to be, their idea of, of just being under the authority that a man tells them what to do. They need to be obedient to the husband at all costs and just to be quiet and be removed. The gospel elevates women. And then the last bit is now just this, perfect storm, if you will, from the, the Jewish law and then also the, the Greek civilization and the thought there, now under Roman law because this area was under Roman control. The Roman law, again, a woman had no rights. She remained forever a child until she was married. There was a, a certain Roman term, a Latin term, that was used that meant 
that a that a, a girl or woman until she was married she was considered a child to her father and only when she got married would that control and I use that term intentionally the control of the father then would be passed on to the husband and then he would be able to control her so now when now we have a better understanding of what is actually going on in, if we were just to impose our culture upon this and maybe what's going on in our culture, we would think, well, these women needed to rebel. If they gave their life to Jesus, they should just run out of these marriages. They just should run off in some commune and she'll be by themselves and they should just be able to go do all that. And wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be just like what John Lennon talked about? Wouldn't it? But instead, the message is not that. Instead, the message is, no, I want you to stay in this marriage because the only way that your husband may come, to know the, may come to know the Lord is by you submitting to God's authority and operating as God's vessel in that marriage. And if you were to simply remove yourself from it, they may never come to Jesus. They may never come to a, a knowledge and a love of Jesus apart from you. So there was a grander point to this to them living on mission and doing what it is that God was asking them to do. And we really shouldn't be surprised by this, I think, because there's passages like Genesis 3.16 that says this. I'll, I'll read the, the, the greater context before we get to the part that's on the screen. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. The pain will be, or excuse me, will, and with pain, will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. This is the very nature as to what we see in our culture of this, this uprising of women to say, no, 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 we need to be superior to men. We need to be above men. We need to do more. Men are incapable. The husbands are incapable. We need to rise above. The very nature of this is rebellion that's been implanted upon all of us as people because of the fall of man that we can see recorded in Genesis 3. So it's no surprise. We're not enlightened. We're only living out what the Bible says. So every time that, that there's something that for you wives, something that wells up in you, like you need to exert your authority and you need to, you need to do this and you need to nag, just I want you to go right back to this passage. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. It's right back to this. That you're going to want what he has. And every time we do that, we're actually acting in a sinful way. We're verifying that this scripture is true. So I want to give you kind of a, a, a grander maybe definition of submission because I realize it's vague and it can be tense and I'm going to deal with some of the, the tenseness in a minute. But submission refers to a wife's divine calling to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. Meaning that she, that, that wives, men and women have gifts and they are to use those gifts not suppressing their gifts or to use their gifts to then help respect and, and to lift up the husband's leadership in the home. And then he, in turn, is supposed to love her and then build her up. Very much consistent in other places in the New Testament as well. But the submission refers to the wife's divine calling, meaning God has placed her there to honor and affirm 
not to dishonor and nag, but to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and to help carry it out, out in according to her gifts. In the way that God has gifted her as she exercises her gifts, that she shows the beauty of Jesus and she's there as a, as a vessel of God and working with the Holy Spirit to change the husband. Just as the husband is to do that for the wife. There's another passage in the scripture I want to go to. We'll just be there briefly and then we'll probably revisit it next week. It's in Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22. And I, I want to look at that before we land back with the six application points. Ephesians 5.22 says this, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So now, this is not blind submission. This is willful submission as, as you wives are operating under the authority of Jesus and been given the authority of Jesus, or with Jesus rather, working with Jesus, to help affirm and equip the man. I, I want to break it down in this way. Form equals function. I'll use an illustration from football. Anyone in here a football fan? Raise your hand if you're a football fan. Okay, you'll be able to help me with this. All right, so it doesn't matter what team you root for, these things I think are true, and I think if you're a football fan, you'll be able to verify this. How many wide receivers in football are 6'7 and weigh 325 pounds? How many? Zero, right? Form fits function. They're supposed to be lean, fast, 6'7, and run long distances. 6'7, 325, not lean, not fast, over the long haul. They're good for about 15 yards, 20 maybe. Be a lot more boring of a game. Now, just, in, just I'm going to say this next one just in case I have the opportunity of ever being an offensive lineman, right? So can an offensive lineman or how many offensive linemen that do you know of that are 5'7", 175? How many? Uh, so there's no hope for me? Is that what you're saying? Just, just tell me. Just cut it to me straight. There's not. Okay. There's not. Form equals function. It's the same on a football field, and yet, you know, the, the great thing is, they have different forms, but they, but they all function to win, and they function as a team. And in, in the context of a marriage, it is a team. It is a team that God is at the center of. It's each one complementing one another to bring each other to Christ-likeness, because ultimately, God will be glorified when we do so, and the world will be a better place. We have some things going against us. And I, these aren't going to be on the screen, but I, I believe one of the reasons why this topic is so full of, full of tension are some of these ideas is because we live under a, a, just a culture that has just a crisis of authority. There's, there's disrespect for authority in the home. You can say fatherless homes and fathers... Absentee fathers have created a huge problem with this. To where now it's like with them not being in the home, then, then we're just seen as the role that he was supposed to fill and then now the mother is supposed to fill or, or even more sadly, a grandmother is supposed to fill or a grandfather is supposed to fill. And it's because there's 
this idea of authority where the authority has bolted. We see this politically. And this isn't, this isn't some campaign where it's about Donald Trump. It really isn't. The same thing is consistent now politically with Donald Trump as it was Barack Obama. It's the same. It's because in our culture, there's an issue with authority. We even see it in the church, don't we? Even people who used to call themselves pastor or clergy or whatever, uh, whatever the terminology was, minister, these type of people, bishop, th- these type of people with the, the title, it had some sort of respect because they respected the authority that came with the position. And, and I looked this morning, as a matter of fact, at this because this is a growing e- epidemic and I was just curious about it. And now, even what it meant to be ordained years ago, and my ordination was through a process, there's a lengthy process, and there was a board, and there's a bunch of people who got together, they grilled me, they asked me a bunch of theological questions, they had observed my life for years, they knew who I was, they knew what I believed, and they knew what my heart towards Jesus and his church were, and I passed the ordination process, but now, because of the authority crisis, I believe that you can become Ordained, literally, they promises you can be ordained in two minutes for $25. Literally. Just go online. A couple clicks away. But there's an even better deal if you want to do this, and I don't recommend that you do. There's an even better deal. I've actually had a family member who've got, who's gotten ordained, quote-unquote, uh, in this way. And they promise a free and instant ordination. Free and instant. And what's really sad is... On it, they, there's, they throw up these certain celebrities, and I'll just mention a couple of their names because if it's on the website and it's public use, I'm not knocking the people, it's just a fact. These people have been ordained through this organization. Again, I believe going back to the authority crisis. First person is Conan O'Brien. Second person, Lady Gaga. And the third person is Stephen Colbert. So think of how absurd that is. And now they're ordained in the same thing that was instituted not that many years ago that came with a level of respect. Now you can become ordained because it's convenient to marry people. And at the same time, it's just slapping authority in the face. Another thing that I believe in our cultural climate that is fueling this angst, and for good reason, is the Me Too movement. And I just want you to know, if you are a a Christian man or woman, Christian boy or girl... Every time that a woman comes forward to say that a man did something inappropriate or said something inappropriate, it should cause us to be repulsed by what happened. Not because they're coming forward, but because it happened in the first place. And we should be the people who are rising up louder and we should be giving the loudest voice louder than any other movement of saying this should not be right and we should be setting such a high standard that they would see the moral character in Christians and that that would be something that would drive them to the gospel as well. Gender confusion is another. Again, with the absence of authority, then you get to be your own authority. You get to decide whoever you are in today's culture. Just the, the physical abuse that's happening in a home by males. This is feeding the epidemic and, and just the angst and stress. It's when, when we allow bad behavior to permeate through generations and we say things like well boys will be boys in other words we're just letting this bad behavior kind of go on generationally and generationally and generationally without one of us and particularly you men and me as a man to stand up and say not on my watch not in my home not around me 
we should be the ones who are advocating that boys will be boys will never be an excuse used again to, to talk bad about a woman or to discredit women or to use women or girls. And the last one is just ultimately, I think all of it coming together is just this us versus them mindset. Meaning now we're at a gender war. Now we're just in the middle of a gender war because of everything I just mentioned. So I'm going to give these six principles and I'm going to fly through these. I want to give the six principles right from the passage. For the sake of time, I'm not going to give you uh, each reference, but I want to give you them for those who, who are wanting to take notes and to dig more deeply into this. First one, it should be obvious, she must be submissive. Verse one. God is empowering her to submit to her husband as a servant of God, not a servant of her husband as a servant of God. God is empowering her to do this. God is strengthening her to do this, giving her the courage to do this. This is not spineless submission. This is voluntary selflessness. That's what Jesus did. It's not spineless submission. It's voluntary selflessness. Second is this. She must be pure. Verse 2. Pure meaning innocent. Pure meaning the purity for the Christian is keeping our hearts, minds, and bodies holy without moral blemish or stain for the purposes of God. That's what this is. Steady confession before God. Keeping our hearts tender and moldable before God. That's what, and that's a way that we should define purity. The third thing is this, she must be reverent. By reverent, I love how the Amplified Bible says that to be reverent is how they explain it because that word's not really a word that we use very much and it seems kind of high and mighty. It says to honor and esteem, to appreciate, to prize, to admire, to praise, to be devoted to, to deeply love or to enjoy your husband. So this is, the, this is how we, to be reverent. That's what this means. Not to undercut their leadership, but to uphold the leadership by lifting him up as the husband and leader of the home. Fourth thing, she must have good character. So many times, so many references in 1 Peter about good character that are not just pertaining to wives, but I believe they're connected. I'll give you a couple of these sources so you can look them up later if you choose to. 1 Peter 1.15 is a reference. 1 Peter 2.12 is a reference. And of course, now we're in 1 Peter 3.2, the reference. There's another one in 1 Peter 3.16. And then in 1 Peter 1.18, there's a contrast. So it shows the opposite of that to bring out the greater point of what it means to have good character. And what we know is this good character is something that's internal, not external, because that's what he said. Because the, the, the inward you is the real you. The, the inward you is the real you, not the, the outward adornment. That's not the real you. Who you are is, in, is internal. And then at the verse 6, it's this. She must do what is right. Not what culture says is right, but she must do what is right in a way to, to live rightly according to God's word. Notice how all these instructions, really, although it, the, the letter at this time is written to wives, it's applicable to everyone, isn't it? Pretty much. So, to do what is right. 
and to live right by God and by other people. And the last one is this. She must not give way to fear. She must not give way to fear. You see, fear is the very thing that Satan would use to you wives to pull you away from your purpose in marriage. Fear is the, I love how clear it is at the end of verse six. Fear is the very thing that is, is gonna cause you to stumble and it's gonna be the very thing that, that causes maybe you to nag and it's ultimately gonna be the very thing that causes you to withdraw from someone else because you're actually fearing giving your whole self to them. And fear is the very thing that the courage surmounts. And it's the very thing that God will give you. You see, I want us to, to be, I want all of our, our marriages to be just a sign and wonder of the gospel. The leadership and the submission is just beautiful. That's what I want it to be. Because God would be most glorified by that and also that would bring the most good into the world. Every one of these issues that I talked about and the things that stand against us right now, if we're honest, they're the very things that are driving the separation in the first place. So let's get it right. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. I thank you for your loving kindness. I thank you that, God, you have set us on a path to having a marriage that, that can be a display of the gospel. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for the clarity of this. And God, now we need the strength and we need the Spirit's empowerment to be able to live it out. Because God, these are days that are scary at times. And there's so many things to, to seek to pull us away. And God, we need to be held close together. And it's only by your Spirit will we do so. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.